Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another mini-sode of the Insight into Teaching Intro Psych podcast. My name is A.J. LaFrere. I am your host. And today I am joined by one of our authors, Bob Feldman. Bob, would you like to take a minute and introduce yourself? Uh, sure, AJ. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Bob Feldman, and I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I'm also an administrator there and senior advisor to the chancellor. But I see myself mainly as a teacher of psychology. That has always been my passion throughout my career, and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about the field and teaching and where I see things going. Okay, so today's podcast is going to be on changes that we've seen over time. And Bob, I think you're a great person to help address this because you've been involved in the psychology discipline for a number of years. We're going to look at four different areas. We're going to start with how the discipline has changed, and we're going to look at how that's affected teaching, then how that's affected authorship, and lastly, how students have changed. So, Bob, why don't we start with um, how you've seen the discipline of psychology changing over time? Well, it's a really interesting subject because I think there's been substantial change in psychology, not just in, in terms of specific findings. So, for instance, now, if I look back to the first edition of my book, I know I talked about how no new neurons are created in adulthood, and now we know that's just not the case. So there's been lots of specific kinds of changes as we've become more sophisticated as, as a science. But I also think the field has changed in terms of overall approaches. Scientists have developed incredible techniques for looking inside the human body, and neuroscientific approaches are found in virtually every area, every subfield of psychology today. And it's been enormously influential in our understanding of the determinants of behavior. So I think that has been um, one overriding kind of theme uh, of change. Another thing that is occurring more, more recently, I think, is increased skepticism about the replicability of basic kinds of, of findings. Anybody who's, who's tried to get tenure knows um, that you get tenure by publishing articles about new findings, and there's very little incentive for working on replications. Well, we're finding now that this, this has really, that it's a very problematic kind of motivation because we really do need replications, and I think some of the basic findings, and we've started, I think, with the area of social psychology in particular, have been called into, into question. And as we develop new methodological techniques and new statistical techniques for analyzing data, I think we're increasingly finding that we need to pay attention to the replicability of studies. So those are, those are just some very broad, both substantive and methodological kinds of changes that have occurred in the field of psychology. So I imagine that some of those changes you've seen in the discipline have impacted teaching in psychology over time. Can you take a few minutes to kind of address that? Sure. 
You know, I, I actually feel very lucky because we're at a time in history in which there have been revolutionary advances, not just in psychology, but in the disciplines of education and data science and computer science, linguistics, and a whole host of other fields. They've really come together to form a discipline of learning science. And learning science has provided us with ways of educating students that were not possible even, even five years ago. Um, there are much more sophisticated ways of using adaptive learning to target personal learning paths for each student that when you present material to them that really is, is quite extraordinary in terms of how effective it is. So I think that, that we're very lucky, or at least I feel very lucky to be at this point where we have a confluence of advances across many disciplines that allow us to, to educate students in a much better manner. Great. Thank you, Bob. certainly seems like there is a significant amount of change in not only the psych department, but in departments across campus. Uh, what about when we look at changes from the perspective of being an author? What are some of the things that you've noticed there? One of the things I'm really excited about is the way that the revision process has evolved over the course of multiple editions of my, my book. And because of the availability of new technologies and better understanding of the ways in which people learn, I've been given a set of tools that I never had initially. Traditionally, when you revise a book, you get some reviews from experts in the field and people who have been using your book, and they give you suggestions about changes you should make. Um, they give you ideas about new topics, and, and that is always essential to a revision. But now I have a whole new toolkit that allows me to take student input into account in a way that I never was able to before. Um, let me give you one example, and that is the use of heat maps. Heat maps are basically a graphical representation of every paragraph in the book and of the previous edition. And what the heat map shows is areas, sections of the book, um, sometimes down to a paragraph, sometimes down to even a sentence um, or a, a definition of a key term. Um, and it shows how students who may have answered tens of thousands of, of times questions about that material, how students have performed in terms of that specific material. So I can look, it's color-coded, it, each area is either, um, section is either green showing that most students got the, the question correct, orange saying it's, there are some misconceptions, and then there are areas that are in red, which shows that the majority of students got the questions about that material wrong. And so it shows in a summary fashion what material students are having the most trouble with. Now, what that allows me to do is take that material and try to rephrase it in a way that makes it clearer. Um, that, that is, it just includes greater clarity and, and ways of explaining it in different ways. Maybe new examples, maybe a new way of just changing the sentence around. 
It also gives me the opportunity to go back to those initial questions um, that the students were answering to make sure that those questions are appropriate and adequate. So I now have a methodology for taking student feedback and using that to clarify what is written in the book for the next edition. And this has allowed me to, um, it's given me insights that, I, that I, I never had before. Let me just give you one example. I sometimes have written definitions of terms which the, the key term was at the end of the, the sentence. So for example, I might have written nerve cells are known as neurons, the key term being neurons in that sentence, and it's at the end of the sentence. Well, it turns out every time I did that, Throughout the book, I found that students were having difficulty with it. And so what I did was to change it so that the key term was at the beginning of the sentence. So for instance, neurons are nerve cells. It's a very subtle kind of thing. I never would have known it without the ability provided by the heat maps. And so it's really allowed me to take a very granular approach to revising that through technology, I never would have, would have been able to accomplish. And the, the thing that, that, that is most gratifying about this approach to revising is that I've seen the results. So I can go into the next edition and see if the change that I made was actually beneficial in terms of the student mastery of, of the material. And it turns out that it is. So that's just one example of how new technology and new understanding of how students learn and the ability to incorporate adaptive learning into material really has allowed me to move revisions into the next level. And so it becomes a much more iterative process where I work hand in hand not only with experts in the field who are giving me feedback, but from the target audience, from students who are already using material. And so it's become, I think, a much more beneficial process, and it has become a much more, more efficacious process in that students are ending up learning the material more effectively. So Bob, I think that's really interesting when you, know, you look at it from two different perspectives. The first is incorporating that data into the revision, which is something that I don't think existed up until you started using this process. The other thing that I think is really interesting and kind of ties into our theme of change over time is the heat map includes student performance as part of what you use to revise. How have students changed over time in psychology or generally? Yeah, I'm not sure we can separate psych students from, from other students. I think there's some broad trends that we can see in who our students are. First of all, most of the time they're digital natives. They have been using technology sometimes from you know, infancy. And so that, that has changed their relationship to the use of technology. They're much more open to it. They're much more used to it. They're much more enthusiastic about it. It's just, it, it's just a given for them. I also think that if you look sort of generally across students today, they have shorter attention spans. It is very clear, you know, when I, you know, when I, when I first started teaching, I, would, I, I thought my job was to lecture for 50 minutes straight. And if I did any deviation from that, if I, I showed a video or if I, I did some kind of demonstration, I always felt a little, little guilty because I thought my job was just 
50 minutes of, of lecturing. Um, I could never do that today. Um, and in fact, I, I probably don't do anything for more than 10 minutes or so before I change to a, another activity. And, and I think this is a reflection of, of attention span, and we actually have some data showing that, that, that students have, have shorter attention spans. I think there's also impatience with reading long passages. To me, that's unfortunate, but I think it's a reality that many instructors face, resistance to a lot of lot of reading. And so for, for me, one of the ways I've approached that is to, in my books, they're, they're, they, they use a modular approach, shorter modules, shorter sections, which I think increases the comfort level of, of students and, and ultimately enhances learning. Great. Well, we've definitely covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else in terms of changes that you want to cover, whether it be about writing or about teaching students or otherwise? Actually, one more way in which students are different today, and that is that they represent much more diversity than students in the past. In the past, I think students were more homogeneous, and today they come from a wider variety of backgrounds, um, backgrounds in terms of race, in terms of social class, in terms of sexual orientation, a whole host of ways in terms of disabilities. There are a whole host of differences that are reflected not only in the population students are addressing, but in terms of the way psychology approaches diversity and what it can offer to allow us to better increase the applicability of the material for our students. And the differences in students actually brings me back to how I approach diversity in the book, how my book has changed um, as, a, as a function of who our students are. So for instance, I, I think it's critically important to address diversity throughout the book, cultural differences, racial differences, differences of every sort in, in terms of how it affects the way we are able to teach our students. So, for instance, I have references to race as a social construct, explanations for basic psychological phenomena like various kinds of visual illusions and, and how that is related to cultural differences, things like what are the effects of speaking multiple languages and um, what are the effects on learning and thinking um, in terms of uh, multilingual students. Um, I have in every chapter and explore, and actually several in, in many chapters, exploring diversity boxes, looking at how diversity affects psychology and vice versa. So for instance, how do um, our research participants reflect the diversity of the human population? And then the thing that I'm actually most excited about is there's a new epilogue to the book which focuses on diversity, culture, and conflict and cooperation. To me, this is one of the overarching themes of psychology and one of the overarching ways in which psychology can improve the human condition. So I address things like how diversity affects individuals' behavior and how it affects the ways in which we observe other people and come to understand other people and how in some fashion it can lead to conflict and other, others' cooperation, and what are the ways in which people can interact more effectively with one another, given the enormous diversity 
of the population of our country and the world. So it's been, for me, in terms of evolving, in terms of what I present in the book, it really has culminated in this new epilogue on diversity and culture. Great. Well, Bob, I think we've, we've covered changes in the discipline, in teaching, in authorship, and in students. You know, it's a lot of ground in a short period of time. I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to thank everybody that's been listening, and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, AJ. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.